I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. God has promised that His Word will not return void. It will do all that He intends for it to do. It will accomplish all He wants to accomplish. And He doesn't need me. And He doesn't need you. But He uses us. He has given us pastors and teachers. He has given each one in the church, each one, for His purpose, for His glory, that the church together might be built up. And so as we gather around the Word to hear the Word today, all of us, me too, that we would hear, that our ears would be open, that our spirits would be attuned. And so let's go before the Lord together and pray. Father, as we come, we want to hear You your voice. We want to hear your word. We want to see the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Attune our hearts. Help us to hear and to see that your glory would shine in us, that we would be drawn to you and enwrapped by you. Father, today have your way with us, your people. Guard our hearts and minds. And even now, if there be sin that encumber or entangle us, help us to confess that to you, for you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be glorified in your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. I know the Matamoroses put up their Christmas stuff this weekend, so it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Everywhere we go. And it's so easy to get focused on a thing that we can forget the main thing. And nowhere is that more evident than in the two prime holidays in Christendom. The incarnation of Christ, Christmas, and the resurrection of Christ, what we will commonly refer to as Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Now, as I prepare, I I do stuff on stage. And as I prepare for a role at the Wichita Theater, I have to memorize my lines. But in memorizing lines, that's not the main thing. I have to prepare my character as well. But even as I develop my character, memorizing my lines and developing the character, that's not the main thing either. Because that character has to fit in to the play. So as I memorize my lines and develop my character to fit into the play, even that is not the main thing. The main thing is that the audience be entertained. Because if the audience is not entertained, we have failed miserably in what our intention is. Well, as we rush headlong toward Christmas, we think of the festivities ahead. Perhaps Christmas parties 
Uh, I don't know if you're a Christmas morning opener of your present or your Christmas Eve opener of your presents, but we start looking toward that. We start thinking about gifts, but we all know as believers that this is not the main thing. Well, but all of these things kind of gather our families together and, oh, that's good. That is good. But neither is the coming together of our families the main thing. Well, maybe you're going to go to a Christmas Eve service or a Christmas Day service and, ah, the music, maybe you're playing music around the clock, Christmas music, and that's all good. And maybe you're reading the Christmas story and that's good too. But just doing these things or preparing for these things or attending these things These aren't the main thing either. And it's very easy to speed through Christmas and completely miss the mark. I mean, the things we should be considering about Christmas are really things we should be considering throughout the year. At least multiple times during each month. As we consider what our God has done for us And who he is. As Israel turned back again and again to look at the Passover and what God had done as they passed through the sea and all of the acts that he did in their deliverance. It would behoove us throughout the year to look back on what God did to ultimately culminate in an old rugged cross. But it began before that. It began in eternity past. It began long before that. But we're going to look today and in the weeks to come at a few, again, non what you would think of as typically non-Christmas passages that highlight the glory of our God and what took place to bring deity... To be lying in a manger. God in a stable. We're going to look at Philippians today and try to fathom the weight of what it means for God to become a man. As we approach this passage in Philippians, just some background. Last week we talked about Thessalonica where it is. Um, imagine Thessalonica, okay, the, the, my hand again, the Aegean Sea, Thessalonica's over here, this is Greece, here's Turkey, there are Thessalonica's up at the north end of the Aegean Sea toward the west. If you travel to the east, 100 miles, you'll get to Philippi. If you want to think of it in Texas terms, Thessalonica is Childress. We are in Philippi. Okay, so that's where you are as far as orientation. You can look on a map. Uh, Paul had been to Philippi, started a church there. It, it exploded. I mean, great reception to the gospel. Paul has great affection. If you read Philippians, it, it, it drips with Paul's affection for the Philippians. And you see in it also, he understands they have a great affection for him. Paul is in prison at the time of this writing. He is in prison in Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea as he writes to them. And he exhorts them, 
what we read about, so we're, we're very early in the letter, in verse 27, Elaine read this for us, he exhorts them to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. There are some things creeping into the church that he hears uh, from the messenger who brought an offering to Paul to sustain his ministry. And so Paul is, is writing them to, to encourage them against uh, these false teachings that are coming. He's telling them to live a life worthy of the gospel. What a treasure, what a joy, what a fellowship with the living God there. And he says, even in this gospel, it's been granted to you not only that you believe, but also that you should suffer. Oh, man, that's not something you would typically expect to hear as good news. But that comes with the gospel message. And he's telling them, yet yeah, this is not something strange. It's been appointed. And as he has a great encouragement in what he has heard of them and from them and seen in them, he exhorts back to them to continue to bring him joy. He, Paul is seeking his own joy, seeking his own delight and pleasure in the gospel in hoping that they would be a unified people. That's what Elaine was, was reading there at the start of chapter 2. If there's any encouragement, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, in the church, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Have the same love, be in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So perhaps in the church there's a little bit of positioning there. And Paul's going, "Uh uh-uh. No, man. Look to everybody else as as better than you. It doesn't matter matter if they're they're teens or they're in college. It doesn't matter if they're in elementary school. Right? Consider others better than yourselves. And that all the unity that that will bring to a church is a great and wonderful thing. Okay? That's a great message right there. Paul's going to give them an example to follow. And in giving them an example to this point, the the example becomes greater than the point itself. And the example he gives is the example of Christ. And this example becomes a doxology. A doxology is a praise to God. It It is one of the highest and most soaring exaltations of Christ within a paragraph that you will read in scripture. Next week we're going to look at another one. So here's here's Paul's encouragement to them starting in verse 5 of chapter 2. He says, "Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus." Okay? So, here's your example, Philippians. Here it is. To yours in Christ Jesus. He's your example. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on a cross. Okay? You guys be like that. Okay? Be like Christ. Okay, you're going, right. He's, he's God. He's Christ. He's Jesus. How can I be like Jesus? Even Jesus told his disciples to be like himself. He gave them an example. As I have given you an example, so you two go wash each other's feet. When God, the Son, calls us to follow after him, he's not, he's not giving us something high and unattainable. He's telling you to do this because he expects you to do this. I mean, to, to think about, oh, I'll be like Jesus, that's almost absurd. He's infinite, I am finite. But that's what Paul says. He says, have this mind. So think on this. Consider this. Don't wait for it. Think about it now. So when the moment comes, the opportunity arises, you'll be ready. Think on this. Conform your mind. Be, have your mind transformed by the power of Christ. Here's the example. Jesus Christ. In the form of God becomes the form of man. Now we read that and we go, he was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. What, what's that mean? That he was in the form of God. Paul's intention is not to confuse them. He is not saying that it's not as though he's not really God. He's kind of just in the form of God. And it is from this ex extraordinary passage that much heresy will burble out. Okay? The word form is appearance, that which strikes the eye. Okay? I look at you and you look like people. You are in the form of people. Could you be something else? No. You are people. Let's set science fiction aside for a time. Okay? You are people. To all appearances, none would say you're a dog. Christ, before the incarnation, abiding Father, Son, Holy Spirit in eternity past, with the heavenly realm, all who beheld Him, who have gone into the heavens, would recognize Him as God. He was God. So that's what it means when you get to the form of God, don't let that trip you up. He was in the form of God. There. But he did not fight for equality within the Godhead. That is not the Godhead. Paul is making plain that the deity of God the Son is no less than God the Father. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
by implication, God the Son is equal in essence to God the Father. God the Son is not a lesser God. There is equality within the Godhead. But in the, in the Godhead, there is perfect unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one. Perfect love, perfect relationship. And so self-existent is God the Son that he's not concerned about his place within the Godhead. He doesn't feel like, oh man, if I become a man, I'm going to be strapped to this physicality for eternity now. He doesn't see that. He doesn't count equality with God as something that has to be grasped or clung to as we see our children clinging to toys and won't give them up at bedtime or whenever. God the Son understands that He is what He is. And what He is cannot change. I have to cling. We have to cling to what we know objectively to be true. This is what God's word has declared. He is my only standard. God is my only standard for knowing with certainty what I am and what who and who he is. And here we see that God the Son does not have to fight for his place within the Godhead. And that should give us, as, as Paul's again trying to use Christ as an example for the Philippians, I don't have to fight for my place amongst you. What am I? I'm a child of the king. I am an adopted son of the living God. What are you? If you are a believer, you are the same thing. If you are not a believer, you are nonetheless created in the image of God as everybody here. You are an image bearer of the living God. Do I have to fight for that identity? No. Nobody can take that away from me. Nobody. Nothing you do. Your, your identity is not going to be found in the presence you give or receive in three weeks. You gave a crummy present. You gave a great present. Doesn't matter. You are who you are. It's not the feast you prepare. It's not if you put up lights like Clark Griswold around your house. It's not in your holiness or your service to the living God. It is who you are in Christ and by God's word that cannot change. God the Son did not count his place within the Godhead as something he needed to cling to. But verse 7 says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Okay, and here's a, 
Here's another verse. I mean, here you've got verse after verse from which an entire epidemic of heresies can spring and has sprung. What does it mean that God emptied himself? Well, one of the things is, well, maybe he wasn't really God in the first place. Okay, that's not what Paul just said. He says he is God. So we can kind of sweep that one away. Well, maybe he gave up his deity at the incarnation. Maybe he gave up part of his deity at the incarnation. Good, there's a couple of squished up faces. Good. The problem with either of those is if I can give up part of what I am, I cease to become what I am. I can't give up part of my humanity. Why? Because that's what I am. God can't give up His godliness. Jesus Christ couldn't get rid of the fact that He is God the Son. So, It can't mean that Jesus ceased to be God or diminished God in some way. Well, maybe he wasn't really man. Maybe there's another great heresy. You know, it wasn't really, really. And this is the church wrestled with this for like 500 years. Some that pendulum would go this way and then it go this way. Maybe he wasn't really man because it says he took the form of a servant. Well, maybe he wasn't really like that. Well, it's the same word for the form of God. You know, he, though he was in the form of God, now he has taken the form of a servant. Well, if he wasn't really God as the, being in the form of God, if, and if he's not really a human in being the form of a human, what is he? He's not either one. He's something other. But that's not what the word says. He was fully God and is fully God and became a servant being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8 fleshes this out, no pun intended. Um, being found in, the, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, in the ESV translates that human form. To, prior to this, the other two words used for form were the same. This one is different. The first two uses of form is that which appears visually. This one is by all senses. Sight, sound, everything. Everything that makes up the essence of man here. The word is the same word from which we get schematic diagram. What's the purpose of a schematic diagram? To see all of it. Okay, Everything's broken down. You can see all the parts, the appropriate parts. Well, here we see he is completely in human schematic diagram. Okay, human. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, he became fully man. However, he didn't become fully human as we are fully human. Okay, well, 
He became fully human as Adam was fully human. Well, it doesn't say that. You're right. It doesn't. But what do we know? We know that Jesus Christ was without sin. Marie's holding her baby back there. One of the first things that baby's going to do is be selfish and lie. And Marie's not going to have to teach that baby to do either one of those things. It just happens. It's in their nature. Okay, it's all about me as the world orbits around my little noggin. And I'm going to do everything to protect myself from being disciplined. That is in your fallen nature, your corrupted nature. Jesus Christ didn't have such a thing. He was, Hebrews 4.15 tells us, without sin. He was without blemish. Hebrews 9.14 alludes to the idea of that perfect sacrifice. It has to be without blemish. There can be no corruption in that. 1 Peter 1.19 says the same thing. He was a lamb without blemish. Jesus Christ challenged those around him, which of you convicts me of sin? He wasn't like hiding one thinking, well, I really messed that one good and nobody's going to know about it. It was because he knew he was without sin. Okay? He did not have a sin nature like we did. As such, his body was not under the curse to die, as ours would have been, or as ours is, as ours is. So had he not been crucified, I would contend he would still go on, because it is not subject to the natural decay that we suffer, the aches and pains, the sickness and the cancers and the heart Issues. As he did not have a sin nature, he did not have a natural inclination towards sin like we do. So, you know, all of a sudden you're sitting around, all this corrupt desire comes up, even in the middle of a sermon, you're going, What? Or that person, man. He didn't have that. You have to. That sin nature was not part of him. He was as Adam was. He was perfect humanity as God intended it. But he was still human. That God would become as one of his creatures should just boggle your mind. It is a staggering condescension. It becomes slightly less so when we think about the fact that God became one of the creatures that was created in His image. If He is going to become a vessel... He's probably not going to become a sea slug. Okay, he's not going to become a skunk. He's going to become the one that already bears his image. In Christ, we see 
the fullness of humanity. In Christ, we also see the fullness of deity, and we'll talk more about that next week. So that then begs the question, so what did he empty himself of? What does this mean? What what does it say? We'll go on. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By being born in the likeness of men. So then the humiliation of Jesus was not a lessening of his deity, but this emptying of himself was taking to himself this form of humanity was becoming one of his creatures. So what did that entail? And to imagine God becoming a man is, is, again, makes my head swim. How does God fit in a human being without that human being glowing, radiating, almost like you, you see in Revelation? You know, or at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what you would expect to see. Whoa! Fully God and fully man. So what did it entail? Well, one of the things it had to entail was that the glory of God was veiled. It was veiled as folks looked at him. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The prophecy about him indicated that there was going to be none of this glowing radiance, this glory that would look strange in your elementary school. But Jesus Christ in his prayer also refers to the glory, the prayer that he prayed the night before his crucifixion. That he prayed to his father, he said, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Which means, I don't have it now. Okay, I am constrained within a human form, so it is not seen Now, could it be seen? Yes. It was seen at the transfiguration. It's seen by John on the island of Patmos as you look at the revelation as you read through the first chapter. Dazzling, white as light is how the apostles described it. So his his glory was hidden or veiled, but also God was constrained by his human nature. What do I mean by that? He got tired. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and eternity, they don't don't get tired. God doesn't get tired. He's omnipotent. An omnipotent being doesn't get tired. Jesus fell asleep in a boat. He was so tired while the storm was raging. He got hungry. He was hungry. So, is he, no, he's, he's fully God, and he's fully man. But in, as God as is the God-man, he is constrained by 
his humanity. Scripture tells us that he grew in wisdom and in knowledge. Pastor preached on that. He grew in wisdom and knowledge. He's God, isn't he omniscient? Yes. But as a little kid, he still had to learn how to tie his shoes. Rivers giggling. Yeah. And he died. As though, though I mentioned, that was not ordained from his birth. Though it was ordained of God by his birth. But it wasn't, it wasn't a done deal until he was crucified. There. Don't get me wrong on that. So we see this emptying in a, in a veiling of his glory and a being constrained in his human nature. But we also see it as a self-veiling as he submits himself completely to the Father. He submits himself to the Father. Now, if he did this by mandate, God the Father says, Go, and you're going to obey me. Yes, sir. Okay, that's not submission. Okay, he's doing it by order, by edict. There. But he knew the will of the Father, and he willingly submitted to this. This is, this I want to do. There is no indication anywhere in Scripture of any hedging. Almost. There's absolute delight to follow after the will. We'll talk about the almost in just a moment. So I hope you caught that. Um, But the magnitude and the testimony of Scripture shows the desire and the thirst of God the Son to follow after the will of God the Father. John, John's Gospel is chock full. You cannot read a chapter in John's Gospel and not see this submission. I'm going to go four chapters in a row here. John 5, verse 19. The Son, this is Jesus' words, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Son can do nothing of of His own accord. Well, it sounds like the Father's kind of got His thumb on Him. Uh Uh-uh. Chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come to do his will. 6.38. Chapter 7, verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I came to do. I came to do his will. I came to teach what he has accorded. Chapter 8, verse 42. I came not of my own accord. Wasn't my, wasn't my plan. But He sent me. He sent me. And there's a submission. All of this, again, back to the prayer of Jesus in John 17. All of this is to the glory of the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. All that I have done is for your glory. And no place is this supreme emptying scene more vividly than at the cross. And we see here Paul exalting that in Philippians chapter 2. Now, 
my recent sermon on Christ's temptations in the garden was kind of the one thing where you go, well, you know, it, where's, where's Christ going to go? And you see him as he is tempted in the garden, wrestling with his human nature. Oh, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to bear the sin of humanity. I don't want the rending of the Trinity. As God the Son suffers the wrath of God the Father. As he takes the sin of humanity upon him. But Christ's response is awesome. Not my will, but yours be done. This is why Paul says he became obedient to the point of death in verse 8 of chapter 2. He became obedient. Hebrews chapter 5, also verse 8, says, Although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In his humanity, he became and learned obedience. Hebrews 5.8 goes on and says, And after that he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He was the perfect sacrifice. He alone. He alone, as the perfect God-man, could atone for the sin of mankind. He became our representative. And he owned our sin. I mean, this would be staggering if we just ended right here. But Paul goes to exalt the servanthood of Christ in the closing verses. Therefore, verse 9 of chapter 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, this all goes back to three verses 3 through 5 where Paul is exhorting them to put others above themselves. And Paul is pointing out to them that it is not for naught that you are going to put yourself lower than others. Look at Christ. He was highly exalted by the Father for his obedience to death. To a point where his name is above all names. This is extraordinary. God has given him a name above all names. There is no name higher than God's. This extraordinary condescension merited exaltation. When we hear the name Jesus of Nazareth. That is a name above all names. When we hear the name Jesus Christ, we should worship. We should, oh, that's my God. When I hear it come out of somebody's curse, it pains me. Because they don't know. They're ignorant. But still, that is my God. And in my pain, that glorifies God. It is a name above all names. A name 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death. And all should bow down to him. Who? All who are in heaven. That one's easy. That's no surprise. All who are on earth, all who are believers today, we should bow before the name. We should glory in the name. But also there is an acknowledgement in the realm of hell and under the earth. They're not going to worship him, but they will acknowledge who he is. They will bow in humiliation and defeat. Like Esau, they will wail and gnash their teeth at the realization that they cannot have what they think is rightfully theirs. You don't get to go to heaven just because you want to. You don't get to go to heaven because you think you've led a nice life. Christ alone, in His name alone. And they will hate all the more, though they will acknowledge who He is. doesn't matter the severity of the sin. All are born in sin. And you could have murdered 57 women. Or you could have stolen a roll of lifesavers. If you are stranded on the moon... It doesn't matter if you're on the hot side, sunny side of the moon or you're on the freezing cold, dark side of the moon. You are stranded on the moon. Every sin will separate you from God. And the separation from God is chasmic. It is unsurpassable, unspannable. And it doesn't matter if you stole a pack of lifesavers or if you murdered 57 women. The punishment will be meted out differently in hell. Yes, there are different grades of punishment. Jesus Christ says that. But that chasm between you and the living God is not spannable. You are forever separated and your punishment will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You are equally damned. So all will confess with crystal clarity. And the extraordinary thing is all of this brings glory to the Father. It turns right around. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Ah. The prima ballerina in the show, uh, the Nutcracker, uh, her father was also in the show. And it is extraordinary to watch a father whose daughter performs so wonderfully and to receive the applause of the audience. And it makes the father's heart soar to see his child lauded justifiably. How much more for God the Father to see God the Son worshipped for all that he did in executing the Father's plan for the redemption of humanity. All that every knee would bow and exalt the name of Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. God is both just 
and justifier. This is our Lord. And so four things, four things that come to mind as far as how this should move us here as we approach Christmas. Man, we ought to delight in who he made you to be. Okay, you are, you're not a sea slug. You're a human being. You're a male human being. You are a female human being. You are what God created you to be. You've got likes and dislikes that I don't have. God has made each one unique. And so I thank God for who I am. But as Paul gave them an example of humility, so we pour out our lives for others. That's the second point. We should not cling to who I am. I don't have to defend who I am. I am who I am. And that frees me to serve you, to be a blessing to you. But also, Paul... No, not Paul. I have no idea who the writer of Hebrews is. But it is because of this very thing that Christ became a human being that he exhorts us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. He knows what you've been through. He was a human. He was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Saints, if we are not drawing near to God often throughout the day, not once a week, not just on Sundays, throughout the day in prayer and study and fellowship and feeding on his word, we are squandering the salvation procured for us by Christ. And lastly, and most importantly, we should be blown away by the God who loves us. That he would become a man. God at one point existed in one cell that became two and became four and became a babe in a womb. For us. Laid in a manger. Shepherds, magi eventually. But to say God became a man without really pondering that significance during our holiday season, that'd be tragic. And so yeah, Paul highlighted the emphasis of unity within the church and our submission. But man, he goes on to give an example that really overshadows the exhortation for humility. He exalts Christ in his condescension. And so I hope that this will draw you deeper in your relationship with God and love for him during this holiday season. It's Christmas. He's given you a great gift. And his heart is to give you all the more because he knows that we are but dust. Let's glorify him in this Christmas season. Father, we give you thanks and praise oh, for what you did to redeem us, to, to plan such an extraordinary thing. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you and worship you. 
thank you for taking on flesh and all that that meant. And we desire and long to see you and be with you. And I pray that you would cultivate that desire in us more and more. That we would become more like you as we hunger and thirst after you. Be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.